Good morning, everyone. It's great to be here with you today. I know over the past few uh, weeks and months, sometimes when I come up on Sunday morning, I like to share a highlight uh, from my week because I'm still kind of experiencing everything for the first time here as we near the uh, one-year anniversary of coming on. I think it was August of last year, so we're getting close. But yesterday morning was my highlight. Yesterday morning. Now, it might not have been Emmanuel's highlight. Because uh, we had Emmanuel's ordination council yesterday, and I think it was uh, three, three probably very intense hours for him. Uh, but at the end of the council, uh, it was very exciting. He did a fabulous job. And I just want to remind you, next week will be his farewell address. Uh, to this congregation, and so we're anxious to have him in the pulpit with us next week, and uh, to commission him, to send him off, to celebrate his ordination. What a work that the Lord has done! Uh, in yeah, Amen. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. It it truly has been a testimony of His divine power and faithfulness. And at, on Wednesday night. At prayer meeting, uh, we, we had a special occasion to hear from Emmanuel, and really he recapped his story uh, from beginning to end, and how beautiful, how powerful, um, just so looking forward to celebrating next Sunday what the next leg of the journey holds for the Adamako family. And we, on Sunday morning here, today, are continuing our study Through the book of John, we've been studying this book. We've been going through chapter by chapter. I joke with you, it's been almost a year, and today we started John chapter 8. So you do the math and count how many chapters are in John, and you can see uh, how long it might take us. But we are studying the book in light of the reason that it was written. And I think it's good that every once in a while we review and go back and read why John said he was writing this book. It's one of the books that give a clear indication of why it was written. So it's good that we remind ourselves. He says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And certainly where we're going to be in John chapter 8 today at the beginning of the chapter is a powerful testimony of the person and character of Jesus. Now as many of you sit here today, there are many who have read uh, maybe the book The Scarlet Letter. It was a book, I believe the author was Nathaniel Hawthorne. It was based loosely on a real account, on something that really happened long time ago. And, and sometimes what would happen is if someone was caught in the act of adultery, they would need to wear a red A uh, on their clothing. Or in some historical accounts, they found evidence that the letter A would be branded onto the person. Now think about how painful and how difficult that would be. But as we sit here today, if, if the scarlet letter doesn't relate to us, maybe we've seen pictures of a stockade before. Does everybody know what a stockade is? A stockade was an ancient form of punishment where if a person had gotten in trouble, they would have to get on their knees and they would put their hands and their head and they would lower the wood down over it and they would have to sit or kneel in the stockade, and oftentimes it was accompanied with people throwing things at them, shaming them publicly. Maybe some of you here are old enough to remember, don't raise your hand, 
We don't want to give it away. But you might be old enough to remember the dunce cap. Anybody remember the dunce cap? Okay, some of you so see some hands about to go up. You don't have to. You don't have to, to admit if you had to wear it. Well, when I was in high school, it wasn't the dunce cap, but I did have a teacher who, if, if you got on his bad side and you annoyed him or upset him, your punishment was to go up to the blackboard and to kneel down in front of the blackboard and put your nose up against it. And then you had to be in that position while he taught. Now, you can't do anything like that today. And it's probably good. We don't want to be doing those things. But he used to say my name in his class was Hervé. He said, Hervé, nose on the blackboard. Get up there. So I'd go up and kneel down and put my nose up against the blackboard. But these are all forms of public shaming, of humiliation. They're ways to manipulate behavior. And they've been used seemingly since the beginning of man. And you know, today we don't have a lot of these things that we use anymore, but we do have social media. And social media today can be, can be, the new stockade. It's a quick and easy way to shame someone who has offended you. Scholar uh, Rita Cognizant, she's done a great deal of research on public shaming, and her remarks regarding social media are telling. Listen to what she writes, quote, The extent to which we are willing to inflict pain on others is tempered by our own shame at being and being thought of cruel. This means that even when a guest or a colleague makes an off-colored remark at a party or a meeting, Few people will respond by gathering everybody around that person to publicly berate them. And then even throwing him out of the building, which would roughly be the physical equivalent of an internet pile-on. The only decent way to respond without making oneself look more loathsome than the original offender is to take him aside privately and offer a gentle suggestion. Listen to what she says now. Social media diminishes both both the discomfort of seeing our victims suffering and the shame of being seen making them suffer, both of which require personal proximity to experience. End quote. Today's message, friends, is a powerful example of the scribes, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Jesus' day. These were the priests. These were the pastors. These were the missionaries. These were the people that everyone looked at for spiritual guidance and spiritual wisdom. And it's a powerful example of them today using a form of humiliation and public shaming to manipulate behavior. Attempting to manipulate both the behavior of this woman and the behavior of Jesus. We find this passage, for many of you that have studied it before, for me it's one of the most captivating events in the entire life of Jesus' earthly ministry. I've heard this message preached probably 20 or 30 times in my life, and it never gets old, ever. It's a powerful example of the character of Jesus. It grips us from the beginning, and it demands a resolution to the problem that's brought before Jesus. Before we 
dive into the text, I want to remind you that as many of you see in your Bibles at the top of your text, this is a text that has a manuscript note. And if you're curious about that, I want to remind you of a message that we preached here all the way back in January. January 27th, uh, we preached a message regarding a Sabbath healing. And it was during that message that we actually dealt with manuscript notes. So if you have questions regarding that and how we deal with that, I want to encourage you to go back. You can go online and go back and listen to that message that was given on the 27th. So if you have your Bibles today, turn them to John. We're going to start in chapter 7, verse 53, and we're going to read all the way through chapter 8, 11. John chapter 7, 53 to 8, 11. Let's pray. Lord, as we open your word today, we always open it with the expectation that you are going to move in power. We know that your spirit is uses your word to accomplish his purposes in our lives. And so that is the anticipation we open the Bible with today. We pray, Lord, that you change our minds, you change our behaviors, you change our thoughts and our attitudes and actions, that when we leave this place today, we would be able to better love you and better love the people that you've brought into our pathways, that we would learn from your example Teach us today, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. John chapter 7, starting in verse 53 and going through eight eleven. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All of the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down, and he wrote with his finger on the ground, and as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to, him, said to them, Let him who is out sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. So as we open this chapter, John chapter 8, the feast from John chapter 7 is in the past. We've closed the book on that. It's ended, and the people, the folks, are going back to their regular day-to-day, many going back to their own houses where they had come from, and Jesus heads back to the Mount of Olives. And if you remember, we showed this picture a few weeks ago. This is a picture looking over the city of Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. It was a popular place during Jesus' life and ministry. From the Mount of Olives, you can capture a clear and beautiful picture of the city as you can look out and see that even now. 
This would be the location where later Jesus would saddle and ride into the city on a donkey, lamenting over Jerusalem, who rejected their Messiah. Perhaps he spent a few nights there in this area. We don't know. It doesn't tell us at the beginning of our text how much time has passed, but probably not too much. And early one morning, sometime after the feast had ended, as would have been the custom in those days, Jesus, as the great teacher he was, went into the temple where he began to teach. And he would find a group of people. Now, if you think about today, well, sometimes we do things like this today. We, in fact, on Friday, we just did this. We got a group of guys together. We said, hey, you know, let's get together and go study the Bible together. Bible note cards. You head to a place. I called up one of my mentors. He met us there. And we sat down for about an hour and a half in the local cafe. And we studied the Bible. And he led the discussion, a Bible and a note card. That's all we needed. And it was wonderful. And we were teaching. We were learning. We were all sitting around the table hearing what needed to be said. So this is Jesus. He's in the temple. He's, he's gathered a group of people around him. And verse 2 alerts us to the reality that many had started to be intrigued by the teachings of Jesus. There was a crowd. A crowd had amassed. Jesus and his mastery of the content and his knowledge of the scriptures, it was attractive to people. People wanted to hear what he had to say. They came and they sat down and he began to teach. Now this is a very public setting in the temple. This wouldn't have been private. It wouldn't have been something that would have been closed off to everyone else. Think of an open air setting. Some place in public where a lot of people could witness and hear what was going to be said. It was a perfect time for Jesus to reveal the true nature of his character to the people. And in the Pharisees and the scribes' minds, as we see in the text... It was the perfect opportunity for them to trap Jesus in front of the very people who had, be, became, had started to be influenced by his teaching and his leadership. They were attracted to what he had to say. And here were the scribes and Pharisees' opportunity to trap him. Look down at verse 3 again of our text. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. Placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? What do we see here? What's happening? What's missing? We have two groups of people, don't we? We have the scribes and we have the Pharisees. And it's important for us to understand that the scribes were a class of people. The Pharisees were a party. These were not the same groups of people. When you think about it in, in our terms, in the way that we understand, the scribes operated and functioned as a class and the Pharisees operated and functioned kind of like a political party. Like we see today, we, we have Republicans, Democrats, Libertarians, all these different things. Well, you had Pharisees. That was a party of the religious order. Not all scribes belonged to the party of Pharisees. So not every scribe was a Pharisee. It's important to know that. And, and not all Pharisees were scribes. But their motivation here is the same. It's the same. And, and what we have is we have this woman who has been caught in this act of adultery. And friends, it should beg a question. 
What is the question it should beg for us? As we see this woman caught in the act of adultery, what is missing? The man. Where is he at? What has happened? Why have they not brought him? I mean, we can only surmise. We don't know. We can only guess. I'm not sure what the motivation could have been for not bringing the man. But surely, the man had some guilt, some part. They say it takes two to tango. I've heard that. Surely, even if he was single, at the very least, he was guilty of sleeping with a woman who he was not married to. And she was married or at the very least betrothed to be married. If he was a married man, he was then guilty of the same crime that she was. But even if he was unmarried, his crime was still punishable. So where was he? He's missing. A terrible oversight by the scribes and the Pharisees. And and one might only think, and I mentioned this to a couple that walked in this morning, we were briefly talking about the message, I thought one might only think what dirt he had on those scribes and Pharisees that they found it so easy to let him off the hook. Because it's not that they caught her running out of the house after the act. She was caught, it literally says, caught in the act of adultery. Which means the man was let off the hook. He was not there. He's missing. And it appears from our text that the crowd that had gathered to hear Jesus teach is still there. So this is a large group of people that this is happening in front of. Not just the scribes and the Pharisees and Jesus, but those who had also gathered in the temple to hear Jesus teach. Many were probably still present as this was taking place. Verse 3 says she was placed in the midst. Public humiliation appears to be the motivation behind this act. The public humiliation of Jesus, but also the public humiliation humiliation of this woman and the scribes and the pharisees they called jesus teacher and i would love to be there to hear the tone of that teacher little sarcasm maybe maybe a little jealousy a little bitterness tell us what do you think and isn't it interesting when they want to press back to the law And they want to go back to the law. Who do they attribute the law to? Moses. Where did the law come from? Yeah. And if indeed they're leaning into Moses' law, if, if this is where they're getting their source, if the law is truly where they're getting their source on how this woman should be treated because she's been caught in the act of adultery, then where's the chapter and verse? Did you ever say it? Show me. Show me where in the law. Where are they coming from that they find that the appropriate response to this woman should be stoning? Perhaps they're using Leviticus 20, verse 10. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Says nothing about stoning. Nothing. But they say in the law that Moses gave, a woman should be stoned. Who's been caught in this act? So what are they using 
Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 22, 22. These are two places where it talks about adultery in Moses' law. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. And we get that the penalty of this crime is death, but it would have been death to both parties. And they only had one. You see, they're using the law for their own gain. And we've talked about this before. We've seen Jesus confront this earlier in the book of John. They're misusing, they're misinterpreting, misapplying the law as they had been given for their own gain, for their own control, for their own ability to manipulate the behavior of the people. They're asking Jesus to give them his legal opinion. What do you say? And this is a precarious situation for Jesus. Think about it. Put yourself in his shoes here. A difficult situation. If he acquits the adulteress, if he acquits this woman, it would be a clear break from the law. A break that could and indeed would later lead to a charge against him. Following the law is... They had interpreted it, declaring guilt. It would have led to a stoning for this crime. And it would have left Jesus at odds with the general public. You understand, like, stoning, I think a lot of times when we read the Bible, and especially the New Testament, and we see something like stoning, we think that stoning is something that, is, that was common even in the New Testament. Stoning happened in the New Testament. It did happen. We don't have to look any further than the example of Stephen. But it was not as common as it was in the ancient Near East, in the Old Testament Israel. And not only that, but it would have been completely uncommon at that time for a sin that was as rampant and as often as committed as adultery. They were asking Jesus to follow the law to the jot and the tittle to the extreme nth degree. But it was a law that they had created in their own minds, not the law that Moses had truly given. So what is Jesus to do here? Certainly it would not be his hand that would have to pick up the first stone and cast it at this woman. It would be the hand of her accusers, according to the law. But if he were to find this woman guilty, and he would tell them to go ahead and stone her, certainly at the very least, he would have been complicit in her death what will our great teacher do how will he respond who is jesus that's the question friends that we've said prevails over this entire portion of john from john chapter 7 to john chapter 10 the question that is being answered is who is jesus How Jesus responds in this situation, his character is being tested, his medals being tested, he's in a public environment, and how he responds here will truly show us who he really is, the true character, the true nature of who he is, and what he's going to do. And there's much for us to learn from Jesus in this situation, both from the posture that he assumes and from the position that he arrives us. Let's start by looking at his posture. Look down at verses 6 and 8. 
he bent down. These men had come and they wanted a verdict and they wanted it now and they wanted it on their own time and, and they wanted it clear and they wanted it quick and I love what Jesus does here. He's not going to give them what they want, how they want it. He stoops down. The true position of a servant, when faced with this wind of animosity, when faced with this adversity, make a decision. Come on, Jesus, what do you say? He bends down. He assumes the position of a servant under incredible scrutiny. His response is not to become angry. He doesn't get hostile towards the accusers. He doesn't blame, complain. He kneels. And then what does he do? He takes his finger, puts it to the ground. And, and I've heard, like I said, I think I've heard this message preached maybe 20 or 30 times and probably out of those times, at least half of them has been over the question of, what was he writing? <laughs> Wouldn't we all like to know? I would love to know. I think that'd be great. Sometimes this is one of those perfect examples where we'd love to just, we'd love if the text just uncovered it for us. What was Jesus writing? I don't know. I surmise it wasn't a flag football play. Kneeling before this group of men who in their minds had already rejected him. Remember this. This group has come already in their minds rejecting who Jesus was. They're not accepting him. I don't know what Jesus is writing, but I, I, I have to imagine it has something to do with what we find in Jeremiah. Friends, this is why I believe the Bible is such a beautiful, powerful, unifying document. Because it's complete, it's comprehensive, the old and the new are beautifully woven together. Keep your finger here and turn back to Jeremiah chapter 17. Remember, as you turn back to Jeremiah chapter 17, that this is a group of men who have forsaken Jesus. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 13. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth for they have forsaken the Lord the fountain of living water now I don't know but you can go and you can pick up a handful of commentaries seven or eight different commentaries on the book of John and if you pick up seven or eight different commentaries on the book of John probably four or five of them are going to tell you that John chapter 8 verses 1 to 11 is out of place I respectfully disagree because 
What have we seen from John chapter 4 all the way up to the end of the feast in John chapter 7? Jesus talking about the living water. And it culminates at the end of the feast, which is in the chapter right before this, in this amazing scene in John chapter 7, verses 37 and 38. We remember this on the last day of the great feast, the great day. Jesus stood up and he cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow the rivers of living water. These men who had brought this woman to Jesus, who had been caught in the act of adultery, they had rejected the living water. They didn't want it. And and I don't know what he's writing, but I know this, Jesus knew the law better than the scribes and the Pharisees, right? Perhaps he was writing Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 13. I don't know. At this point, we can only guess. That not only has his posture, the kneeling and the writing in the dirt, not only has it displayed incredible patience with the people who are bringing this charge, but it also does something else. When he kneels down and he puts his finger in the dirt, every one of those men whose eyes were on this woman who had been caught in adultery, every one of those men would have taken their eyes off of that woman and where are your eyes now? They're on me. So, not only is he showing patience and, and, and showing a, a concern, but he's also redirecting the wrath of these men from this woman towards himself. Great leadership from Jesus. The Pharisees, the scribes, they don't really care about this woman, friends, do they? We know when we read this text, they care nothing about this woman. They weren't concerned at all for her. They didn't have her best interest in mind. There was no desire to see her forgiven here. There's nothing about restoration, reconciliation. Moses' law says to stone women such as this. Their concern was fully held up in how Jesus would decide or adjudicate this matter. And Jesus knew this. And his posture And his behavior placed the attention on the heart of the matter. The matter that was truly unresolved in the hearts of the Pharisees and scribes. And that is this. Who is Jesus? Who is this guy that we come, we bring this woman to him caught in adultery. And he turns around, kneels down and draws up some things in the dirt. Who is this guy? What is his position On the matter, his judgment. Look in verse 7. In verse 7, he stands again. This is back in John chapter 8, verse 7. He stands again to speak his decision. One sentence, not like the decisions we get from our Supreme Court today. Those are like books, you know. One sentence. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. See, they had come to make a public spectacle of this woman and of Jesus, but Jesus' judgment would throw the spectacle back on them. 
To deny that they were sinners would make them look pretty bad, especially in front of this audience that was young men and old men, scribes and Pharisees. How would it look if the oldest scribes and the oldest Pharisees were to deny that they had no sin? Or to deny that they were sinners? As Jesus is leading in this situation, as the scribes and the Pharisees consider how Jesus is ruling, look how they respond. Look at verse 9. But when they heard it, they went away, one by one. Beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman. This is a kind term, by the way, when we see this. It's not like we think of it today, like, woman. That's not how it was, all right? It's all on your tone. Very kind, very gentle. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. One by one, friends, they abandon their cause when faced with Jesus' judgment. They are determined to cut their losses, beginning with the oldest who no doubt had the most to lose. They start walking away. The crowd disintegrates into the hustle and the bustle of the temple. Jesus has successfully in his leadership diffused the situation and rescued. He's rescued this woman from her accusers. He stood as her mediator between the scribes and the Pharisees and his law. Isn't it interesting? The scribes and the Pharisees all come to accuse her to... to, call her guilty, they're standing there, and at the end of this, she is the last woman standing. Her and Jesus, the two of them. And now alone with this woman, Jesus, for the first time, this is the first time in this passage, that he turns his attention towards her and the situation that she has found herself in. Now, in her shoes, consider this, the damage has been done. This was a public spectacle, friends. We can't make light of that. Her character and her reputation has been tarnished. People knew what she was involved in. Her life may never be the same socially. She may have been regarded as an outcast for the rest of her life. Her family may have even disowned her. A public spectacle had been made of her sin. And her, what happened would be the subject of gossip, I'm sure, around the temple for weeks and months to come. Jesus knows this. And in verse 10, he stands to address her gently. Where are they? Has no one condemned you? And imagine her relief. Knowing that she was facing certain stoning, Jesus says, has no one condemned you? And I can't imagine that there wasn't a little piece of her that was concerned that a Pharisee may be coming around the corner who believed himself to be blameless and getting ready to pick up a stone and chuck it in her direction. It didn't happen. No one. No one, Lord. And in his final judgment for this case, he confirms what the gospel writers already told us to be true in John chapter 3, verse 17. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. 
if there was no one left in the audience to condemn this woman, neither would Jesus serve as her condemnation. Condemnation was the ministry of the law. That was what the law brought to the people and those who live by the law, all they'll ever know is condemnation. But what do we know from John chapter 1? Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And what a perfect picture, what a perfect scene from the life of Jesus' leadership and ministry of grace and truth. Jesus would, he would see the curse of the law thrown down, shattered as the original stones it had been written on, only to reestablish it and build it back up on the foundation of grace. Grace and truth. And friends, the new singular command, church, the new law today, the law that we have today, the law that's been impressed upon our hearts is not a law of condemnation, but it's a law of love. And at every opportunity that Jesus had while he walked on the earth, he proved it over and over and over again. Only Jesus, the Son of Man, had the ability and the authority to pardon and forgive her sins. And he did so. Now, friends, it's important we recognize he doesn't approve of the sin. He doesn't dismiss it. His command is for her to go and do what? Sin no more. It's the most loving thing that Jesus could do for this woman in this situation. Not to excuse it, not to hold it against her, but to challenge her to stop and to go and not do it anymore. So friends, we ask ourselves often as we come to the conclusion of our text, how should our lives look in light of these realities? And, and I will tell you, I, I believe, friends, we have an incredible opportunity before us today in a world that is so set on condemnation. We open this morning looking at the reality of condemnation that comes through social media so often. We live in a land where the law is popular opinion. And our daily judgments are based on this law of popular opinion. What is currently culturally acceptable. It is a culture that's quick to condemn, quick to cast judgment, slow to give grace, and often withholding of mercy. But friends, Jesus' example to us in this scenario from his life should be a powerful example when the Spirit's at work in our lives, we're when we're compelled by Christ and motivated to love, we should be able to extend grace, extend mercy, to seek to forgive, to look past offenses that have been brought to us, to pursue the building up of brothers and sisters, broken brothers and sisters, friends, because we're all broken. We've all been saved by the same marvelous, miraculous grace that Jesus extended this woman. We've all been saved by that same grace. We were all guilty. All of us stood before Jesus dead in our trespasses and sins. And he looked upon us and didn't hold our offenses and our sins against us. But he extended his grace and mercy and he forgave us. So our question to consider today, friends, as our team comes up to lead us in a closing song is, 
What does extending grace and mercy look like in our homes? With our spouses, with our children, what does extending grace and mercy, forgiveness, what does that look like? What does it look like at our jobs? Extending grace, extending mercy when someone's late, when someone does something that makes a ton of extra work for us. What does extending grace and extending mercy look like? How about in school, when we have a professor or a teacher that we don't like very much? They don't like me, they're unfair to me. I always get a bad grade when I have them. What does extending grace and mercy look like to them? What does it look like with our friends? What does it look like with the relationships that we have that are difficult? We feel like we've been wronged. We feel like someone spoke bad about us in the community or even to our face. What does extending this same kind of grace and mercy look like? How about in our communities, friends? You see, the example of Jesus in this text is so powerful. It should be a powerful motivator for us to love those the Lord has placed in our pathways better than perhaps we are even today. Let's pray. Lord, we acknowledge this morning that it is indeed in our weakness and our own incapability that we come before you. And Lord, a task so great as this to extend grace and extend mercy to those who have caused us hurt or to those who have caused us difficulty. Lord, we acknowledge today that it would be a task that would be impossible to complete of our own power, that we need You, the work of Your Spirit and Jesus, to do it for us and through us. Lord, our prayer is that You would, through us, help us to love as You have loved us. Father, if we can love in that manner so many of the problems that we face every day would dissipate. Teach us to extend grace, Lord. Teach us to extend mercy. Teach us to be forgiven. To not excuse or dismiss sin as we see it, Lord, but to confront it, to challenge it. And do it in a way that's loving grace extending, full of mercy, seeking the best of the others that are involved. Lord, might we do this with the right attitudes, the right hearts, the right motivations, and might it be glorified.